Are you looking for more ways to learn about military and veteran culture? Are you a mental health professional or public health professional without lived experience in the military but find yourself working with veterans? Are you a caregiver or a family member of a veteran? Then you might be interested in a series of books that have been released with you in mind. By going to VeteranMentalHealth.com forward slash books, you can check out three books that give you an insight into veteran mental health from a combat veteran perspective. These books are a collection of short, consumable essays that discuss a wide range of topics related to mental health and wellness in post-military life. Head on over to VeteranMentalHealth.com forward slash books and check them out for yourself or follow the link in the show notes. And I think one of the reasons veterans don't see care is they have a misperception of what care would look like. So they have a lot of ideas. One is that I'm going to be medicated uh, constantly and I don't want to be medicated or that I'm going to have to sit and rehash all of my traumatic experiences with a stranger and I don't want to do that either. And so a lot of times people aren't seeking help because they don't know what the process looks like and that so many other things can be helped without even I mean, you could get better without even talking about your trauma at all. So there are so many other things that can happen. And I just, I think there's not a lot of education about the therapy process in general. Welcome to the Change Your POV Podcast. You're listening to Headspace and Timing, a show dedicated to breaking down the stereotypes of veteran mental health. I'm your host, Dwayne France. Let's get ready to make sure that your headspace and timing set correctly. Hey everybody, welcome to Headspace and Timing. If this is your first time listening, then thanks for checking us out. As many of you who serve know, the M2 machine gun, the 50 cal, is one of the greatest weapons in the military's arsenal. The weapon's headspace and timing isn't set right, however, it's just a huge chunk of metal. Veterans can be rendered inoperable if their headspace and timing is not set correctly either. That's my mission here, to raise awareness about veteran mental health and reduce the stigma against seeking support. Each week we'll talk about different aspects of veteran mental health and interview mental health professionals that are working with veterans, service members, and their families around the country. Hey folks, welcome back to the Headspace and Timing podcast. Uh, once again, I really appreciate you taking the time to listen and uh, and spend your time with us. Uh, today, uh, my guest is is someone that uh, that I've known in the community for for a little bit, for for probably about a year and some change. Uh, and she is also another uh, both veteran and mental health professional. There are more than one of us in the world. Uh, and so uh, she is uh, someone that, that really uh, kind of believes a lot of the same things I do. So uh, I would like to introduce uh, Dr. J. Blair Cano. Uh, Blair, welcome to the program. Thank you. I appreciate you asking me on. So uh, before we get started, I'd like to uh, let you tell a little bit about yourself and, and kind of what you do um, uh, to the audience. Okay. Um, well, I am medically retired from the Navy. I served in a training squadron, BF-101, where we trained uh, fighter pilots for F-14 fighter jets. I was an avionics uh, electrician. And when I finished my time there, I was medically retired. I moved here in 2003 to finish school. 
um, where I got a master's and then doctorate in clinical psychology with a concentration in neuropsychology. And I also have a master's degree in clinical psychopharmacology. And then I opened a practice in 2009, and we serve primarily the military community, but others as well. So it, that's always fascinating to me, and I don't even think that uh, in our conversations that I really, uh, that we ever really talked about um, how you got into the mental health field. Like me, you were not a mental health professional when you were in the military. Um, you know, what is it that, that got you interested in working with uh, veterans in mental health or just mental health in general? Uh, well, several things. Um, <laughs> excuse me. My uncle, actually, and a lot of people don't know this, um, was a Vietnam veteran who had schizophrenia, and he committed suicide when I was 10 years old. And so that had a really profound effect on me. Uh, obviously, but uh, in part of that, I had always wondered what what role uh, the VA played in giving him services, how supportive they were, how supportive our family unit was, and as a child, of course, I didn't know these answers, and so that was probably the first time I actually started thinking about any of those concepts, and then, of course, when you're in the military, you make friends with a lot of people and see and hear a lot of different things, and I actually got my undergrad in criminology, which is what I thought I wanted to do. And then I realized as I moved through that um, training that that probably wasn't exactly the population I wanted to work with. So I decided I still want to be in the helping field, so I'll kind of transition to psychology and see where that goes. And it just evolved from there. I think a lot of that happens with a lot of us where you start down one road and then you kind of find yourself somewhere else. Um, and I have a love for the veteran community. and. So here I am. Yeah, I think that uh, um, it's real important is to understand, obviously, why we do what we do. Um, our profession um, is, uh, as you said, it's a helping profession, uh, but we each have our own personal reasons for doing so. Um, uh, my my reason, uh, very similarly to yours, was uh, my father and three of my uncles served in Vietnam, uh, and I watched how each of them responded differently. Uh, to their experiences. Um, my uncle um, speaks about it to this day. My father, before he passed, really didn't speak about it at all. And so I saw the, the, the differences, but also I knew that I could not be, well, definitely couldn't be my parent, my father's therapist, my uncle's therapist, um, but just understanding what that generation went through regarding mental health for me was something that I wanted to keep our generations veterans from having to go through is that sort of similar oh i completely i uh, completely agree with you um my grandfather was in world war ii in the army and then my uncle was in the army for vietnam and none of these topics were ever talked about um even upon his death actually none of these topics it was almost taboo and so when you're in the military and you see people struggling and you know it shouldn't be a, a taboo topic, and you know we need to talk about it, but the community is just very hush-hush about it. Um, it just, you know inside, internally, that's not the right way to deal with things. And so, luckily, we are in a place now where um, I think the stigma is less than it used to be, and I'm hoping we continue to move in the right direction where it's more and more less um, stigmatized. I, I agree, and, and again, you and I have had several conversations about this uh, sort of not on the podcast, 
uh, for for everyone, Blair and I are both. We work in the same community. We're here in Colorado Springs, and 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 we've had probably three or four different conversations about this kind of thing, um, about trying to get the word out to veterans about what mental health actually is or what therapy is, uh, and really break down that stigma. Um, so mm-hmm. you, you talked about the stigma, Blair, but there's there's a couple levels of stigma, right? There's the the external stigma. But then the, there's the internal stigma. Which do you believe is is greater? Mm, both and neither. <laughs> I think they play together often. Um, I think our town is interesting. We are surrounded with military installations here, and so we have an interesting opportunity to bring it into the forefront more. And I do believe our community does so more than many others. Um, because we have such a um, heavy population of military, I think that the stigma is higher in other parts of the country where there's less psychoeducation to the community as a whole about what PTSD is, uh, or brain injury for that matter, or moral injury um, added to that. And so I even did a talk last summer uh, for the Pillar Institute where I, it was a psychoeducation piece essentially. And I was surprised in this community how many people sat in the audience and you could tell by their face and their nods and then they came up to me afterwards and said, wow, um, I had no idea this is what's going on, but you just described my uncle or my husband or my father or, you know, somebody in my family that's been struggling for years. So I think part of the conversation and opening it up is allowing people to know it's okay to talk about these things. Um, And I think a lot of that is true with regard to the topic of suicide. I know you and I have talked about that. And I believe a lot of people believe that you shouldn't be talking about suicide. You need to not say anything about it or it's going to cause someone to go ahead and try to commit suicide when, in fact, uh, it opens the door and the lines of communications. And more often than not, it prevents a suicide. So... I think people need to be allowed internally to feel as though it's okay to express whatever they, whatever deficits they feel like they're dealing with. But we as a community have to provide that platform. No, I, I agree with you. It's, it, it can be very isolating. Um, it could be isolating for caregivers or those uh, experiencing it. Um, and, uh, and it's something that, that almost naturally people want to keep to themselves and they think that that's protective. But like you said, it's really not. Mm -hmm. I think part of what happens with the internal stigma is if you're functioning at a certain level before you are subject to this, um, and this happens for people all the time, you know, they're very functional in their job or their assignment, and then they uh, experience the trauma, they have PTSD, and they will say things to me like, I feel as though I have acquired a learning disability. I used to be able to do X, Y, and Z, and I can't do it now. And so internally, of course, for all of us, that feels horrible to know I was functioning at a certain level at one point, and now I can't even do basic things, and I don't understand it, first of all. And then, of course, what am I going to do to get back to good or as close to good as I can get? Yeah, and I, and I think that's a challenge is um, many veterans, in my experience, and, and perhaps you can feel the same with the veterans you work with, is they, that they think that that's it and it will never get better. Why bother? Um, mm-hmm. why, why go work with somebody? Um, because, well, now I'm dysfunctional and, and the, the dysfunction is just the way it's going to be forever. 
Mm-hmm. Well, and again, I think that's a lack of education and lack of talking about it. I uh, I had an intake with a guy last week, and he was describing so many things that are common to many people with PTSD. And I looked at him and I said, oh, well, that makes sense for this situation. And he said, really? And I said that four or five times. And he said, nobody's ever talked to me about what PTSD actually is and that anything can be done about it. And I've been diagnosed for 12 years. And I said, so you've never had any of these conversations. And he said, no. And I said, well, I need you to know that for someone with PTSD, these symptoms are normal and we can rehabilitate you. And he just, the look on his face was a mixture of bewilderment. Um, He was happy. I think he was surprised that he had never heard that information. So the mental health community has to do a better job of psychoeducation. You know, I and 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 I I definitely know that this is something that I ask veterans the same thing as like has anybody explained to you what PTSD is? Um, you know, and and on my limited basis, you're much more um, uh, experienced clinical basis of the neurological basis of PTSD uh, and, and things like that. And and like you, I'm surprised that uh, veterans or uh, veterans who I work with uh, sometimes spouses. They're given a diagnosis of PTSD, but nobody ever actually explains what that is. And that's not typical. Mm-hmm. You know, when, when somebody is diagnosed with diabetes, for example, they say, oh, this is caused by low blood sugar and this is what it does. And, and there's an explanation behind what diabetes is. Um, we, yeah, so- we describe PTSD according to its symptoms, but not its root cause. Right. Well, and when you're explaining a medical condition, you also say this is the cause of the behavior changes or the changes in your body, and then this is what you can expect going forward. And those conversations don't happen either. So when people feel this internal stigma, it's because they know things have changed within them, but they don't know that that's normal for what they've been through. And so they feel outside of the norm. But the problem with that, of course, is so many people are walking around with the same feeling. They're not outside the norm. There's a whole group of people who feel the same way. Same with caregivers. They all feel isolated, yet there's a whole group of caregivers who are feeling the same way. And these conversations are happening to let them know you're not alone in this. I understand it. I've been there before or I, you know, heard this, that, or the other helps. And so um, the biggest part of this is isolation, I think. No, and, and I agree, and that goes back to this, uh, you know, nobody ever explained that to me, nobody nobody ever helped me understand that, and, and what you've done was just describe my uncle or, you know, um, or, or my, my husband or what have you. Um, you know, I, I had a, a colleague, uh, you know, with, with the writing that I do, and, and I was having um, uh, a coffee with him probably a couple weeks ago now, and, and he was like, you know, you get me, right? It's like, were you in my head? You know, when you wrote that, that's about me. And and I think not a lot of veterans feel that. And when they, when they see somebody, they see something external say, I can tell that what you're going through is X, Y, Z, it surprises them. Oh, absolutely. I think they're somewhat caught off guard. Um, because consider part of the PTSD profile is that you're very guarded and secretive often. So you think you're putting off a certain image to the world and that nobody sees that you're struggling when, in fact, the people closest to you or who can recognize it do see that you're struggling. 
Um, and so I think some of it is, is they're a little taken aback by that. And then I think they're relieved also. There's some level of relief in that. Yes, um, we we do like to understand why. Like, you know, if you're going to... If you're going to send me in to, to you know, uh, get, uh, you know, bullets raining down on top of me, just tell me why, you know, I'll still do it. Right. But, but I'll, you know, just, just give me a good, you know, an understanding and, you know, and, and maybe at certain times in my career, I was that soldier that asked why one too many times. And when I was a leader, I didn't want to just do what I said, but, but I think that, that, you know, in my experience, again, for veterans uniquely just say, just give me something I can understand. Um, and mm-hmm. then I know what to do. Right. Well, and I think one of the reasons veterans don't see care is they have a misperception of what care would look like. So they have a lot of ideas. One is that I'm going to be medicated uh, constantly and I don't want to be medicated or that I'm going to have to sit and rehash all of my traumatic experiences with a stranger and I don't want to do that either. And so a lot of times people aren't seeking help because they don't know what the process looks like and that so many other things can be helped without even, I mean, you could get better without even talking about your trauma at all. So there are so many other things that can happen. And I just, I think there's not a lot of education about the therapy process in general. And uh, again, a conversation that you and I have had that, that uh, many of us in, in our profession, in our, our, the mental health counseling uh, industry, um, really don't do a good job of getting out there and explaining what we do. Um, we know the product that we have to sell is really great and beneficial, um, mm-hmm. but we're good at practicing. We're not that good at, let's say, marketing. And, and essentially, that's what it really is. Right. Well, and I think what is, I I agree with that, but I think there's another level with the veteran community that's difficult because it's a pretty tight-knit community. And so more often than not, what I think happens is if someone gets in the door and has a good experience, the best marketing tool is that veteran because they will go to their buddies and say, hey, I got the person for you. They get you. You don't have to rehash everything. Um, You can be safe with this person. Hopefully someday you can trust this person. And so the word of mouth with the veteran community is even more of a marketing, um, I don't know if you'd say tool or advantage, but I believe that's how more of the vets come in than in other marketing ways for the general population. Unfortunately, though, I think the opposite can happen, too, is that if a veteran has a bad experience with one therapist, then they can generalize that to all the therapists, and they go back to their buddy and say, don't worry, don't bother, it was crap. Absolutely, that can happen as well. So moving to, and you were talking about what PTSD is and, and things like that, and I have a, um, you know, in my clinical training, um, the, the, uh, an understanding of the neurological basis of PTSD. And, and you know, uh, I often explain to people, and, and I think that, that you've seen it in, in uh, some of the presentations that I've done, um, PTSD, I call it an injury of the behavior. It's an automatic fear response, um, you know, and we're talking straight PTSD, where mm-hmm. um, traumatic brain injury is a physical injury of the brain. Um, so, and, and, and I assume um, that we'll, we'll kind of find something to put in the show notes that, that listeners can go back and, and maybe see, you know, these, these areas of the brain that I, I'm certain that you're going to talk about. But can you, can you give maybe a brief overview of what 
um, how PTSD impacts the brain? Yes. So in the past, uh, PTSD was thought of as strictly an emotional disorder. So behavioral disorder where, um, yes, you were, you were hyperreactive to things and they used to call it soldier's heart. Um, you know, you were having heart palpitations and things like that. And they thought it was only emotionally driven. And that has been a theory for a really long time. It's only been in the last, I don't know, maybe 10 or 15 years that we've actually, uh, changed gears a little bit and neuroscience has taken over and we've got more research. So now what we are able to understand is that there are actually fundamental changes to structures of the brain um, and hormonal systems in the body, neurotransmitters in the body. And so when those structural changes occur, that has an impact on overall brain functioning, not just behaviors, not just the autonomic nervous system, but, but many different things, memory consolidation, so we're talking about many, many systems, and it used to be thought in the field of neuropsychology that if there was an insult to one part of the brain, it was acutely located just in that part of the brain. It was called a focal injury, and that it didn't impact any other part of the brain. And we now know there are circuits in the brain that work together all of the time throughout the entire brain. So when one of the structures of the brain changes as a result of PTSD, it does have an impact on other structures in the brain. For instance, the amygdala, which people call the uh, fight or flight system, the fear center of the brain, is very closely related to the hippocampus, which is our memory consolidation area of the brain. That happens to be tied into the prefrontal cortex in an area called the anterior cingulate cortex. I know these are all big words that probably a lot of people don't know, but essentially what it means is when the fear center goes haywire and is overactive, the anterior cingulate cortex should act like a clutch, kind of like your car, to say, okay, okay, you're overactivated, but let's shut that down for a minute. Let's be able to think this scenario through. But in PTSD, the volume of the anterior cingulate cortex reduces, so that clutch fails to work anymore more appropriately, I should say. So, therefore, the prefrontal cortex, which is our planning, our processing, our reasonable thinking, is not working as well, so it can't shut down those fear responses the way it used to, Um, and that becomes a problem. So, then we see things like impulsive behaviors. You can see personality changes. You can see um, people have a harder time with day-to-day tasks and living. Um, It's also associated with a part of the brain called the insula, which holds Uh, empathy. So if we have changes in that part of the brain, people appear to be uh, having less empathy for other people or scenarios. So they're really all tied together. And that's newer information in our field. Yeah, I've uh, always, I think, explained it as as you're definitely explaining it as a an integrated system. Um, But to to maybe um, how I explain it, some veterans, uh, imagine someone uh, you make a fist curled over your thumb, right? Uh, and, and where your wrist would be the brain stem. Well, that, the thumb is, that's the, the area underneath you're talking about the, the hippocampus and the amygdala, um, what people call the reptile brain or the, you know, the, the, the lower brain. Um, and then the, our fingers curled over our thumb, um, are, it's the prefrontal cortex. Um, and I often explain that the, the, the back part of your brain is the gas pedal. You know, let's let's tromp mm-hmm. on the gas pedal and let's rev things up to go. 
where that front part of your brain is the governor that keeps the gas keeps the RPMs from going too high. Exactly. And without the the cingulate cortex engaging that, and I like that idea of the clutch engaging the the governor um, to to keep it from that. Uh, without that, then it's just all gas pedal all the time. Right, and that's dysfunctional for people. That keeps you in a state of high alert all of the time. So if your clutch isn't working properly, you know, there are times and scenarios in the civilian world where you do need to be more acutely aware, and there is a present danger that you need to evaluate. But what happens is if that other system, the emotional system, is in hyperdrive all the time, you start to perceive what would normally be innocuous stimulus as threatening, even though it really isn't. And that's part of your clutch not working properly. And so then you feel like you're in a threatened mode all of the time. So your behaviors are adjusted, you know, to be in defense mode, essentially, when you don't need to be. And and there's an embodied component to this as well, uh, because, um, you know, it's connected to our nervous system. So when Absolutely. when the amygdala and, and the hippocampus and those those when that starts that that actually produces physical changes in our bodies. Mm-hmm. And those are the same things that used to be referred to as things like the soldier's heart, right? When you're having heart palpitations, that means your autonomic nervous system is go go go, and your parasympathetic isn't working as well as it needs to. Um, an analogy I use with people often is it's like when you're sitting at a stoplight and your car should be revving at zero RPMs while you're just sitting there, zero to 1,000 RPMs. And instead, your brain is in a, a situation in your body as well where you're revved at 3,000 RPMs all of the time. So if that's the case, it takes very little at that point for you to become hyper, even more hyper alert, to be scared easily, to get angered easily, um, to be frightened easily. So that becomes your new norm is the problem. And so we have to work in therapy, and there are multiple ways to do this, um, to kind of reset that system so you're back at a normal RPM, if you will. And so as you had uh, you had mentioned that there's been advances in neuroscience over the last 15, uh, 10 to 15 years, maybe even going back to the late 90s, I think, um, uh, that our, our brains are actually, they, they change, you know, we talk about neuroplasticity and I'll make sure that there's a link, uh, to, to a, a greater description of neuroplasticity. Um, but, and I'll start it. And of course you can pick it up is, um, our brains adapt to, uh, the way that the, the way that we think, the way that we act. Um, I think Freud, even way back in the day said that, you know, neurons that, that fire together, wire together. And so if we don't have this control over the hyperactivity, then there's a greater chance that we're going to continue that. Um, and that, you know, I'd say there's a, uh, there's a, a, a mile wide superhighway between the lower portions, the emotional activation portions of our brain and our nervous system. But there's a footpath uh, from the front part of our brain, the prefrontal cortex, back to that can, the, the emotional side. Right. Yes. And so uh, neuroplasticity, again, like you said, is kind of a newer idea. Uh, It used to be thought that our brains were finished growing, if you will, around 25. And then that was it. You got what you got for the rest of your life. And if you had an injury, um, that was it. There was no rehabbing it. And so now we know that's not true. Our brain is plastic, meaning it changes until the day that we die. 
So there's always hope of changing behaviors, um, changing the structures in the brain. For instance, uh, there's been some research on mindfulness, meditation, and that literally just sitting in silence helps regenerate neurons in the brain. So, yeah, there's really new science coming out every single day, as a matter of fact. And so that's helpful for me because that means that we can rehab people. Uh, PTSD is not a curative model, meaning thus far nobody has found one way to cure it. But you can rehab people either very close to where they were originally or to a new norm that is functional for the life that they have now. And that can happen with medications. That can happen with things like neurofeedback. It can happen with psychotherapy. Just the attunement of a good relationship and mirror neurons can change uh, other neurons in the brain. So there are many methods now. Um, prayer is the same thing as meditation, um, having your strong faith. So there's many, many ways to rehab your brain and your soul. Now, and, and definitely want to get into some of those different methods that can, um, can, uh, can help change uh, and, and kind of develop different behaviors. But um, the impact of trauma on some of these um, uh, regions of the brain, you know, I've, you've, you've heard people talk about the, uh, the battle-scarred amygdala. And, um, and, and there have been studies that showed repeated exposure to traumatic or crisis events result in lower uh, hippocampus volume. Like the, the, there's parts of your brain that shrink um, mm -hmm. due to repeated trauma. Correct. That is true of the amygdala. Uh, the latest science on the hippocampus would say, did it lose volume because of the trauma or do people with smaller volumes are they predisposed to traumatic experiences? And so that one is not clear, but the amygdala is absolutely clear. Um, the volume loss in the anterior cingulate cortex and the insula is clear as well. And we're able to see that through PET scans and certain types of imaging. You can't necessarily see that on an MRI, so that's not as clear, but we're having more and more advancements that are going to demonstrate this to us in the future. Yeah, and so the way I explain to, to some veterans is, you know, let's say, you know, these areas of your brain, uh, they're a blank sheet of paper, and then if they're constantly bombarded by stress, uh, you know, cortisol, you know, all of the hormones and, and everything, the adrenaline, all of these things, and so then the, the paper gets wadded up in a ball and, and crumpled, uh, some of these treatments can help smooth that back out, but it's never going to be the same pristine piece of paper that it was before. Would that be accurate? That is completely accurate, and that's a really good point, and I'm glad that you brought it up because I believe that is a misnomer in the field and that people have been told or for some reason do believe, I'll go through a certain treatment and then everything will be just fine again or perfect again. And the unfortunate truth is trauma does change a person on so many levels. And no, you will not be the exact same again, but you can be a very good version of yourself and you can be a new and improved version of yourself in other ways. Um, so that's a really good analogy and I'm glad that you brought that up. Well, and I think that, and, and again, we, we work with we're very similar work with the same population. I hear it all the time. Uh, veterans will say, well, I just want to be the 17-year-old me. I just want to go back to being who I was before. I was a class clown. I was the, you know, the, the jock. You know, I didn't have any problem talking in front of people. Can I just go back to being who I was before? 
Uh, typically, what I say mm-hmm. is, I don't want to be the seventeen-year-old me because that guy was a moron, right? I want to be. <laughs> I mean, it just I, you know I, all of the my life, my lived experience. I want to hold on to them, but I don't need to be the you know the the shuddering you know uh, uh, shallow part of who I am. They're they're we temporarily time-wise there's no going back but psychologically there's no going back either i'm not a big fan of the idea of a new normal because they're you know normal is developing and and you always have a new normal but but exactly what you said is is you can be a better version of who you currently are by integrating all of these things well and i think along with that is bereavement so part of therapy should be when when people say i want to be my old self i want to be my 17 year old self part of what they're saying is i feel a, pers- a profound sadness and sense of loss just like a death right of who this image was and i need to process the fact that that's not who i am anymore and that's not who i'm going to be and i don't know how often that is addressed in therapy, but I think that's a big piece. So there's a bereavement piece that has to be worked through um, because there is a loss of sense of self there. Yes, and then we we get away from uh, PTSD itself, traumatic brain injury itself, and this goes more into the realm of existential psychology of what is my definition of self? What is my definition of mm-hmm. meaning and purpose? And, and the bereavement of losing my military you know, I'm no longer Sergeant France anymore. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm no longer have that identity. Um, a, a fellow co-host on the podcast network here, Jeff, said that uh, um, when, when he was medically retired from the Army, he could no longer be allowed to be who he was, that the Army said he couldn't be him. Uh, and that, and, and for me, heartbreaking, but, but, that's, but, but a lot of veterans see themselves as that, and that's an aspect uh, that's not a that's not a, a diagnosable condition, but it's a very real aspect of veteran mental health. Oh, absolutely. Well, there's a loss of community that goes uh, hand in hand with that. When somebody is either medically retired or it's just time to retire or they choose to leave, any way you any way that happens, there's a loss of community, and this is something that I do not believe civilians understand fully is the community you develop in the military, even if you don't like the guy next to you. um, It's a very strong bond anyway. And the experiences you go through solidify that bond. And to lose that, no matter how that occurs, is very difficult. And then to reintegrate into a new community, meaning um, the civilian sector, can be very, very difficult. And often people feel isolated because they realize I no longer am fitting into the military community, but I really don't fully fit into the civilian sector either. So I'm kind of in this uh, no man's land in between. And so who am I in this middle area? Uh, And that's a really hard place to be for people. No, I really like that. Again, um, uh, another common um, uh, statement that uh, another one of the hosts talks about, he said, you know, you'll never be a civilian. You're always going to be a veteran. Um, That a, a veteran is a total third entity a thing you're not a civilian Mm -hmm. even though you wear civilian clothes because you see things and i've written about this you see things through a veteran filter um but you are also no longer a military person as well and so you're Mm -hmm. you're this total third thing um one of the uh, i i guess a an example would be uh military children who don't have they don't have any place that they're from. My kids aren't from anywhere because they were army brats. Mm-hmm. And and right. so it's this grounded 
um, it's a sense of identity that that is not really well defined. Absolutely, I agree. So, in in going to the idea of now that, that we know that trauma does impact the um, uh, the the regions of the brain, uh, that there are different treatments that can help increase that. You know, we're talking about you know different volume in the hippocampus or the amygdala that's overactivated. Um, the lower um, uh, lower volume, the singlet, all of these different things. And, and I've seen research, and, and you've mentioned some briefly, that they can help bring that back. It can increase volume, that, that like certain treatments can and have proven to um, bring back to a level of functionality. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, for instance, one of the methods that we use, um, neurofeedback, helps retrain the brainwave activity, which also works hand-in-hand with your neurochemical makeup. And so we're able to kind of adjust things from that angle. Psychotherapy, uh, research that I've read in the last year actually said psychotherapy and medicine work equally as well to treat PTSD as a whole. It's just an individualized approach, meaning one person will respond better to one or the other, but neither one works better than the other. So both those methods help regenerate parts of the brain. Again, are we going to have complete regrowth of that certain structure? That has yet to be determined. uh, determined. However, we can see growth in many other parts of the brain. And so the brain also starts to use, uh, if, if certain circuits are shut down, if you will, it starts to use other parts of the brain. It recruits other neurons. And part of therapy as a whole uh, is aimed at redoing that, regenerating these neurons and communication tracks. Yes, uh, and, and, I, and I like that you brought that up. I often describe that as um, is borrowing real estate from next door. Um, you exactly. know, uh, people talk about how, um, you know, when, when someone loses their hot, their, their sight, then their hearing, uh, becomes sharper. They lose one sense and another sense becomes more sensitive. Um, that the way I explain it is that, um, basically once that region of the brain that was responsible for, for auditory input from hearing, for example, once you're no longer getting activity there, um, the visual cortex will say, Hey, you're not using that real estate. I'm going to borrow it. And I'm going to spread out over there, and I'm going to take some of that. Mm-hmm. Which is really exciting, and that's why the field of neuroplasticity is so exciting, because remember, we used to think that was impossible, and now we know it's happening all of the time. So I think that's really exciting science, um, and I'm excited to see what more we find out about that and how uh, compensatory the brain actually is. And so in, in one of the ways to help develop that, that, you know, and, and, and this is the, you know, it's like, well, if I just think positively, then I'll, I'll be more positive. Well, science says yes, right? That, that it kind of does work that way. And the opposite is also true. If you think negatively, then you're going to be negative. Um, but mm-hmm. one of the ways that, that you say that you help, and, and we do a, a, a certain kind of uh, thing too, is, is neurofeedback. So um, when, when I describe biofeedback, neurofeedback, and my way I can start, and again, you can go, is biofeedback um, is, uh, is, is your Apple Watch, right? It, you know, a heartbeat monitor um, where mm-hmm. there is some measurement of a, a condition of my body, a, um, a, blood, cu- a blood pressure cuff is biofeedback. It's measuring 
my my blood pressure and it's responding back to me um, so I can see it from external so that sort of biofeedback neurofeedback is the same thing only using brain waves well, that's a very simple way so could you expand absolutely so you're exactly right um, neurofeedback is brain-based biofeedback and there are many different types but essentially the same thing is happening is we are getting information from the brain whether it is behaving underactive in some areas, overactive in some areas, like we had talked about previously. Uh, often there's a mixture of the two, right? We have both of those things happening at the same time. Um, and so it essentially gives the brain the information via a visual and an auditory screen to say, okay, this is what you're doing, but this is what you need to be doing to either increase certain levels of activity or decrease levels of activity. So it's retraining those brain waves to be less aberrant, um, and it's very effective. There are various types, so some of them put no electrical input into the brain. Some do put electrical input into the brain. Both have been found to be effective, so it doesn't really matter what type you get per se. Um, the research on the various types demonstrates that they all work to some capacity. So in our practice, we combine uh, neurofeedback with psychotherapy because I believe the more plastic the brain is and the more it changes and calms down, the more receptive people are to the feedback they're getting via therapy and they're better able to implement those changes outside of therapy. And so uh, neurofeedback does help induce a, a more calm state in the, in the brain, as you were saying, the overactivation. Can you, can you talk briefly about the different uh, wavelengths, you know, alpha waves, gamma waves, that kind of thing? Right. So think about, uh, so delta waves are what we are producing when we're asleep. So the only time we really want to be producing a lot of delta is when we're sleeping. However, if you're profoundly depressed or you've received a brain injury um, or we have shrinkage in certain parts of the brain, you produce more delta and theta waves during your day waking hours which is kind of sluggish, right? So that's the whole, I'm having a hard time getting up in the morning. I'm feeling this brain fog all day. I feel sluggish all the time. I can't feel happy about things. And so certain brain waves we want to see more active at certain times of the day. So the theta and the delta are, I call them gunky. They kind of bog the brain down. Then we move into alpha. Alpha is kind of this really nice, calm, cool, collected state where you're, you're calm, you're relaxed, but if something were to walk in front of you, you could be aware of it, but you're not uh, hyper aware of it, right? You're not going to be um, hyper aroused by that stimulus. Then we move into beta, one, two, and three, and those are different levels of activity we need to see in the prefrontal cortex, for instance. So when you're planning and you're processing and you're thinking about how am I going to get all the stuff done in my day or how am I going to pick up the kids and then get over to soccer practice and da-da-da-da-da. You need some of that beta happening in the prefrontal cortex or else you would not be able to plan and process like that. And so sometimes beta goes haywire on us and rides herd, if you will, too much of the time and that produces overactivity throughout the brain and that's where we get uh, symptoms like insomnia, hyperreactivity, being on alert all of the time, um, and so it depends on the type of brainwave activity and what part of the brain is producing it. That's what we're looking at trying to modulate. And so, and there are different types uh, in, in here uh, in Colorado Springs and other places I've heard around the VA, they've used a, a device called the Alpha Stim, 
uh, it's a it's a device that stimulates alpha waves or it, it simulates alpha waves um, and then the brain's responsivity going back to that neuroplasticity that you were talking about the brain uh, sort of synchronizes with um, with the the alpha stem or different types of neurofeedback to say mm -hmm. okay I'm going to uh, I'm basically going to synchronize with this calmer um, uh, uh, pulse. Correct. That's correct. And and so and and I think this is a an important thing for for many um, practitioners to understand that there's there's actually hard science behind not just PTSD um, that uh, I actually. Uh, and I'm not going to go on a rant, um, but 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 earlier today <laughs> I was listening to something. Someone said that uh, uh, PTSD was just a throwaway diagnosis. That that uh, when they didn't know what else is wrong with you, they just slapped PTSD. Uh, I respectfully disagree, um, based on my clinical experience and and the the science that I know of. Um, that that yeah. it actually had the, there's a clinical or a scientific basis to PTSD. Uh, but also there's a scientific basis to the methods that actually work. Absolutely. And with neurofeedback, uh, we are getting more and more research. And there are actually DOD studies on some of the bases across the country uh, that are measuring the outcomes. And so I believe we'll see more and more of that research coming forward. Uh, in our field, in the trauma field, Bethel Vanderkolk, I'm not sure if you know, I know you know him, but if others don't, he's kind of the guru of trauma, if you will. Um, and he has been producing some research most recently uh, with, uh, I don't remember which neurofeedback method he's using, but uh, so there, there are some big players in the field doing really good research to substantiate its effectiveness, and, and we will see more and more of that coming forward. Yes, definitely, and and uh, again, uh, Dr. Vanderkolk is also very big in embodied trauma, um, how trauma mm -hmm. manifests itself uh, within the uh, our physical bodies. Um, but also, he's done a lot of research on, uh, as you had mentioned, mindfulness, meditation, um, but even yoga uh, and things like that. And 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 it's definitely not as simple as loud noise goes off and you know we we hit the floor. Uh, definitely that right. happens, but it, it can be much more complex, both as a, a standalone condition, PTSD itself, but also in the wider range of veteran experience. Well, absolutely. And the somatic experience is important because uh, an important piece of information that I don't know how many people know is that the cells in our body have memory of their own separate from our ability to recall things in our brain. So, Children, there's a lot of science um, for children that before you are able to acquire language, if they go through trauma, their bodies react in a way independent of their cognitive memory and their ability to verbalize. And when you're in the middle of combat and all these things are happening, your brain does at times kind of shut down and dissociate to preserve you, actually. But that doesn't mean that your body is not experiencing those same things in the body cells hold on to that memory, and that is a separate type of memory. So somatic therapies, all of them, are very helpful because of that reason. And when you're talking somatic therapies, um, uh, things with, um, uh, there's definitely yoga, right, or, or, or tai chi or some type of uh, meditative movement, 
Um, but uh, but there's also just just physical interacting, uh, you know, uh, walking and, and talking and hiking. And, and this is where exercise is also good for mental health um, and, and things like that. Oh, exercise. So that's really interesting. Uh, and I know it's hard when people are depressed because they feel such abolition. They don't want to exercise. And that's part of where we have to come in to help motivate. But exercise has been proven to be as effective as um, antidepressants for treating depression and anxiety. It's been proven to be more effective in the treatment of Alzheimer's disease than any of the medications. Um, and, and for the Alzheimer's population, actually, it's dancing that they've done the most research with. So exercise as a whole is so vitally important to everybody. Um, if we did nothing else, actually, exercise would do a lot to heal us. Great. So now my wife's going to listen to it, to this and say that now I need to take her dancing because that's, that's <laughs> it. and I don't dance. I do a lot of different stuff. I can sing, <laughs> I can talk, but I don't dance. But thanks, Blair. Now I have well, to see, do that. You're going to have to do that so you don't get Alzheimer's, you see. <laughs> no, I, and, and it, this has been great. I, I think this has been a, a really a great overview of the neurological basis for PTSD. And, and I know that, uh, well, I'm going to link, uh, send a link to the article uh, that you wrote on the Headspace and Timing blog and include that uh, in the show notes. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and probably, like I said, I'll dig up some, uh, some examples um, of, of the, the brain regions we were talking about. Uh, we didn't even get to uh, talk about traumatic brain injury, so we'll have to have you back on the show talk about that and the impacts of of traumatic brain injury. Uh, it being another one of the signature um, signature wounds or signature conditions uh, out of the the recent conflicts. So, if if people wanted to learn more about what you're doing or some of the stuff you've talked about, how can they find you? Your website, stuff like that. Uh, well, my website is www.cononeuro.info. Um, we have a lot of information on neurofeedback. I put a lot of the articles that I write on there under the blog se- section. Uh, my email address is also on that website, so people are welcome to email me at any time with questions. Um, and I would love to come back and talk about TBI because this last set of wars is where we're getting the most data about TBI, where this was not available to us in the previous wars, um, especially Vietnam. We didn't have as much TBI then as we have had in this last set. And so the research has expanded. We know some new things. We know a lot more about how TBI and PTSD can co-relate. And so that's really important information as well. And I would love to come back and talk about that. Absolutely. So uh, thank you so much uh, for joining us Uh, on the show well thanks for having me I really appreciate it absolutely The struggle is real, found a piece and lost a soul Eventually my drinking, it got out of control There in darkness I roam, struggling to find home See suddenly death didn't feel so alone 22 a day, destination unknown It could have been avoided if you picked up the phone But now you're gone, so I guess all we get is the tone Nothing but bone weeds, overgrown, pushing up stones I've triumphed over enemies, co-created mini-me's Broke out facilities that tried to put an end to me R.I.P., I'd rather grind in tranquility Authentic tendency, embrace my ability So there you have it, folks. Another episode of Headspace and Timing, a show dedicated to changing your perspective on better mental health. 
I'd like to thank Doc Todd for giving us permission to use the track Not Alone from his amazing album, Combat Medicine. Doc's a guy who's trying to bring the discussions about veteran mental health out of the darkness and into the light, and you need to check him out. Head over to therealdoctod.com to purchase the album and support the cause. You're not alone, veterans. Ever. The struggle is real, found a piece and lost a soul Eventually my drinking, it got out of control There in darkness I roam, struggling to find home See suddenly death didn't feel so alone 22 a day, destination unknown It could have been avoided if you picked up the phone But now you're gone, so I guess all we get is the tone Nothing but bone weeds, overgrown, pushing up stones I've triumphed over enemies, co-created enemies Broke out facilities that tried to put an end to me R.I.P., I'd rather grind in tranquility Authentic Tennessee, embrace my ability Are you looking for more ways to learn about military and veteran culture? Are you a mental health professional or public health professional without lived experience in the military but find yourself working with veterans? Are you a caregiver or a family member of a veteran? Then you might be interested in a series of books that have been released with you in mind. By going to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books, you can check out three books that give you an insight into veteran mental health from a combat veteran perspective. These books are a collection of short, consumable essays that discuss a wide range of topics related to mental health and wellness in post-military life. 
Head on over to VeteranMentalHealth.com forward slash books and check them out for yourself or follow the link in the show notes.